No Pilots Plane Tales, the K2R of Aviation. After last week's tale, here are a few more letters of the alphabet to ponder on. K is for Kilo. Not any old Kilo, but the ones we dialed into our ejector seats. In the early days of Martin Baker seats, the sole method of propulsion was a solid propellant charge inside an expanding telescopic tube attached to the seat that forced it out of the cockpit. This provided enough clearance to survive an ejection from an aircraft travelling forward at a reasonable speed, but at low speed and altitude ejection often failed because the parachute just couldn't inflate fast enough. Fitting a larger charge risked permanent back injury, which were already common enough, so the additional height needed for full parachute deployment was achieved by the addition of a rocket pack. The rocket propellant was fitted into a series of tubes under the seat pan, fired by a lanyard that pulled out a sear pin once the seat was well out of the cockpit, and exhausted through a pair of rocket nozzles to boost the seat clear. Even this two-stage thrust system gave the pilot an acceleration of 12 to 14 Gs. In the version of the new rocket-powered seat in the F-4 Phantom, it was thought that the angle of the nozzles was important to ensure the best trajectory and also make sure the thrust line ran through the centre of gravity. Therefore, on climbing in, we had to remember to dial in our weight in full flying kit into the rocket pack pitch control unit. Embarrassingly, my stature plus my extra heavy flying gear slightly exceeded the maximum setting, but I decided that being the fine company that Martin Baker is, they would have built into their calculations some extra fat to account for my extra fat. In future seats, it was discovered that the back seat occupying navigational consultants were either lying about their weight, a common conceit, or forgetting to dial in their kilos, which had a negative effect on ejection. As a result, this requirement was designed out of future seats. L is for Lepus. The Lepus flare was a night illumination flare of several million candle power that could be dropped by an attacking aircraft to render the ground below visible for ground attack. Its duration could be set on the ground, and once deployed it would descend slowly on a parachute, giving off a brilliant yellow-tinged light. Those who had the rare pleasure of diving into this swinging globe of illumination could be affected by a variety of forms of disorientation, not ideal when hurling your little pink body at the ground. Night vision was, of course, destroyed, whilst the swaying line between light and dark could give false horizons. It was frequently described as flying inside a goldfish bowl. A Royal Navy pilot describes approaching their carrier to attack targets being towed behind. After finding the ship on radar and dropping the flares, they dived onto a large ocean cruise liner. They hoped that the passengers' eyes would have been partly blinded by the brilliant flares, 
and might never see the formation of armed phantoms barreling down on them. The same pilot describes an F-4 having problems landing on Ark Royal at night and diverting to Naples short of fuel. On arriving, they discovered that, whilst a single controller remained in the tower, the airfield was closed. Apparently, the runway was clear, but the lights were unavailable. With little fuel left, the crew said no problem, and they tossed a lepus flare into the overhead and landed safely in a blaze of light, if not glory. M is for money. As a few unfortunate captains know, the monetary status of your airline is vitally important when away from base. Should the rumours of the imminent collapse of your outfit spread, you are quite likely to be refused such essentials as fuel for your return journey. If your airline has unpaid bills, it's also quite likely that you will return to your mighty steed to find it surrounded by bulldozers and being held hostage until accounts are settled. As a consequence, most companies give their captains credit cards to cover unexpected payments, and in some cases they have set off with briefcases full of banknotes to cover expenses in cash. Should the sad moment arrive when an airline finally goes bust, the crew might be lucky enough to find out before anybody else. Stories have been told of the captain quietly waking their crew and creeping out of the hotel in the dead of night before being held personally liable for the bill. After walking a discreet distance, taxis were summoned, and once at the airport they were faced with the difficult task of getting their aircraft refuelled, planning their return trip, and finally getting airborne before the news broke. Some actually made it. Not every money story involves bankruptcy. Some airlines regularly gave their captains pockets full of cash just to bribe their way around the world. The Virgin flight, the first on a new route through Russia, was once forced to land at Moscow because the clearances agreed at government level hadn't quite filtered down to the air traffic controllers. The captain was faced with an enormous bill for landing fees and fuel so that he could return to London. Credit cards were refused, and he resorted to having a whip-round amongst the passengers until enough cash could be found to allow them to escape. It says something about the passengers that they had enough pocket change to cover the sizeable demand. N is for N number. Back in the day, there was no real way to identify one aircraft from another, a fact that frustrated aircraft spotters the world round. Arguments were already in full flood when, in 1913, the first passenger-carrying airline was started with the catchy name St. Petersburg-Tampa Airboat Line about who owned the air above a territory. The viewpoints wavered between either no state being able to claim sovereignty to every state having the right to do so. It was at the Paris Convention of 1919 that such matters were settled, and at the same time countries were allocated a unique first letter, 
followed after a hyphen by a combination of four other letters or numbers to be used to register their aircraft and become the aircraft's radio call sign. Initially, only five nations were given such letters and the rest of the world were lumped in together and had to share. Each country would use a national aviation authority to issue a unique registration which was recorded in a national register and on a legal certificate of registration. During the conference, each country was given a few letters and for its aircraft, Great Britain chose G and the United States of America chose N. They also had K and W, but since these letters were already being used by various radio stations, and the Navy had used N since 1909, the US government decided that it would reserve N for itself. The choice was not particularly popular, and the journal Aviation wanted W in honour of the Wright brothers. However, by 1927, the air commerce regulations required N for international flights, and eventually everyone had to toe the line. The US also chose to use numbers after the N, which followed a trend common before the N was required, when C was used for commercial aircraft, S for state, and P for private. After adopting the N, airworthiness categories followed, which were C for standard, R for restricted, and X for experimental, and later on L for limited. This remained in force until 1948, when only the N was required. Registrations can be reused after an aircraft is demolished by a careless driver or honourably retired. For example, November 3794 November is used by a Mooney M20. The registration was previously allocated to the aircraft in which Buddy Holly died. I wonder if, on a quiet flight, they ever hear the cricket. O is for orifice, uh, specifically the one belonging to Miss Tilly. Miss Beatrice Schilling, known as Tilly, was a young female engineer working for the Royal Aircraft Establishment at RAF Farnborough during the Second World War, who came up with an alarmingly simple modification to prevent the SU carburetors of the Merlin engine from cutting out. If a Spitfire pilot tried to follow an ME-109 with its fuel-injected Daimler-Benz engine into a dive, he couldn't bunt his fighter, he had to roll it inverted and pull. This was because the float-controlled carburetors couldn't supply fuel under negative G, and the Merlin would momentarily cut out, a severe tactical disadvantage. What Miss Tilly devised was a small metal disc that acted as a flow restrictor made to accommodate just the fuel needed for full power, plus a diaphragm fitted to the float chamber. Miss Schilling travelled around the countryside from one RAF base to another, fitting the restrictors, and although it was officially named the RAE Restrictor, the device was immensely popular with fighter pilots who gave it the suitably risque name Miss Tilly's Orifice. P is for P, 
Being on an airliner, no, not actually on the, uh, uh, never mind, is not usually a task that one looks forward to. Although sometimes just getting away from your traveling companion for a few moments of private contemplation can be a blessed relief in itself. There is always the question of whether it's worth taking off your complimentary socks and putting on your shoes to avoid stepping into someone else's leakage on the toilet floor and then waking up your fellow passengers to get to the aisle. Modern facilities are pretty tight for space, but in some cases so tight there isn't even enough room to turn around. So, gents, you might need to decide which way to face before going to the gents. Ladies, I'm guessing, will usually reverse in. In most modern airliners, flushing is assisted by a vacuum pump that removes your deposit at something approaching Mach 1. And don't worry, getting stuck on the seat after a flush is an urban myth. Having said that, have you ever seen the trick of unrolling an entire toilet roll down the aircraft aisle whilst getting willing passengers to support it on their flat palms? One end is then put into the toilet bowl and flushed. speed with which 110 feet over 33 meters of toilet tissue disappearing down the loo is cause for much hilarity. One thing that often causes comment is why, when smoking is banned on a flight, is there an ashtray in the toilet? There have been many instances of fires in toilet waste paper bins caused by burning cigarettes, one of which brought down Varig Flight 820. In a case in 2015, the perpetrator on a Monarch A321 was caught and jailed for over nine years. Because of the danger, toilets are fitted with smoke alarms, bin extinguishers and, under FAA regulations, an ashtray. In 2011, a jazz flight from Fredericton to Toronto couldn't depart because the ashtray was missing. Instead, they had to fly the aircraft to Halifax without passengers just to have a new one fitted. Q is for the Queen's Flight. Originally the King's Flight. The Queen's Flight provides air transport for the British Royal Family and the Government of the United Kingdom. Unlike the glitzy aircraft used to transport the President of the United States of America, the Queen's flight has traditionally been a modest affair, until the recent arrival, that is, of the RAF's VIP A330 Voyager adorned by a snazzy Union flag paint job. The first member of this exclusive club pitched up in 1928 and it was a Westland Wapiti, shortly followed by a de Havilland Dragon Rapide. The Envoy 3 they had was replaced in the war by a Lockheed Hudson and de Havilland Flamingo. When peace returned, a long list of types came and went, including the Viking, York, Heron, Devon, Whirlwind, Wessex, Dakota, Chipmunk, Bassett, Andover, BAE-146, and, as mentioned, the A330 Voyager. 
other aircraft have been pressed into service as Royal Transport, such as the Comet, the VC-10, and, of course, Concorde. What isn't as well known is that whenever a Royal flight trundled around the United Kingdom, it flew in purple airspace. This specifically designated airspace was a corridor or terminal area that was provided solely for the Royal flight, notified by NOTAM and active 20 minutes before and 20 minutes after the aircraft passed. There was a special cell in the Tower of London for anyone foolish enough to enter it when active. The use of purple airspace was quietly dropped after 9-11, since it rather advertised the presence of a high-value target. R is for RR. There are a few aircraft engine manufacturers around, but few with the heritage of the ones built by Mr Charles Rolls and Mr Henry Royce. Mr Rolls met Mr Royce in 1904, when Rolls, an avid promoter of and dealer in automobiles, agreed to enter a partnership to build and sell the finest cars in the world. Success followed, with Rolls putting much effort into publicising the quietness and smoothness of the Rolls-Royce. A keen aviator, Rolls made over 170 balloon ascents, even winning a Gordon Bennett gold medal for the longest single flight time. By 1907, he was increasingly interested in aircraft, and the next year he flew with Wilbur Wright before buying a Wright Flyer for himself. He became the second person licensed to fly in Britain and made the first non-stop double-crossing of the English Channel. Sadly, he also became the first Briton to be killed in a powered aircraft accident when the tail of his flyer broke off during a flying display in 1910. Royce kept the company name the same and, at the request of the government, began building aero engines in 1915. Their very first engine, the Rolls-Royce Eagle, powered the first ever non-stop crossing of the Atlantic by Alcock and Brown in their Vickers Vimy. The Rolls-Royce continued to produce fine motor cars and engines which powered some of the most successful aircraft of the Second World War, such as the Spitfire, Mustang, Hurricane, Lancaster, Mosquito, etc. At the same time, the company was asked to supply Britain's first jet engines, six of Whittle's WR1. This opened the door for them to produce generations of jet engines, such as the Rolls-Royce Olympus that powered the Vulcan and Concorde, the Avon, Conway, Spey, Pegasus, Adur, RB211 Trent and such. Rolls-Royce remains a world-famous manufacturer of aircraft engines and fine motor cars, each adorned with their famous double R. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guys show. If you want to find that, have a look at airlinepilotguy.com. If you enjoyed the Plane Tale and want to leave us a review, that would be much appreciated. Or perhaps let your friends know about it on social media. <laughs>